The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. We are heading towards the end of the year and the start of a new year. And what does that mean for the security clearance community? To help answer that question, I'm joined by Evan Lesser, the founder and president of clearancejobs.com. Nobody knows the cleared community and the cleared marketplace better. So it's a real delight to have him on the show. Anytime we have him, his insights are always super relevant to our community. And these episodes are, are super interesting, even for me, somebody who works for clearance jobs. So I appreciate your taking the time to chat with me, Evan. Always, Lindy. Happy to be here. Kind of want to talk about, you know, market predictions. You're always really good at doing this. I think it's something that a real value of clearance jobs is it's not just a career site and a community for folks in the national security space, but you are providing a ton of insights to our customers and our audience regularly about, you know, the national hiring landscape actually looks like. I feel like we're on year infinity of it being a really challenging hiring market, but I did want to start with kind of like what we can expect for 2024. I feel like we're constantly saying it's going to get worse. Is that kind of what you're seeing as a market reality as we head into 2024? Yeah, you know, employers with security cleared workers, they are going to find the new year as challenging for recruitment and retention as ever. Quite simply put, there is a supply and demand imbalance, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse over time. You know, based on recent surveys on clearance jobs, 92% of cleared personnel say that they're already employed, they already have jobs, 92%. So that means that only 8% consider themselves to be unemployed and actively job-seeking. Each day, though, the government awards new contracts to vendors that require workers with clearance. And in many cases, those workers either don't exist or they exist in such small numbers, it makes recruiting you know, difficult at best. At the same time, you know, employers really need to be worried that their own cleared employees will stay in place. Poaching is rampant these days. And a little more than half of clear workers we've surveyed said they were likely to very likely to leave their jobs in the next year for greener pastures. Yeah, I think that's huge. We've been talking about the retention piece of it for a long time. If you hire a cleared worker, can you keep them? And we're seeing kind of that revolving door of cleared employment and talent. And it's really important if you find somebody that you're able to just onboard them and also try to keep them. And it's super competitive out there. The reason for that is in part because it is still somewhat time intensive to onboard new talent that does not already have a security clearance. We do see security clearance processing times going up again. It's been a good news story over the past couple of years that the government has brought those timelines down. But I know the last quarterly update had 170 days for a top secret security clearance, 100 days for a secret clearance, a lot higher than you know we tend to prefer. I get a lot of pushback and folks say, well, those, a lot of those folks can get an interim clearance. But if you're in the contracting space, there's you know, certainly sometimes requirements about who can work under an interim and who can't. And again, I'm tracking it and following it. Curious to hear your thoughts. If we continue to see the clearance processing times go up, 
What does that mean for this employment landscape? What does it mean for employers in the space? Like the tides or the stock market, security clearance processing times ebb and flow over the years. There'll be a few years where processing times are shorter, relatively speaking, and then they grow again. And while employers may not like the current 170 days end-to-end processing for a top secret clearance, not too long ago, in the middle of 2020, it was 221 days. So it's all relative. But what I can say is that what goes up must come down, but we should expect 2024 to not be the year where employers put candidates up for a new top secret clearance without a whole lot of waiting. I'm afraid too that the typical cycle we see is that when clearance processing times go up, it tends to come almost exactly at the same time as some security breach. And it's interesting about the Jack Teixeira case that happened earlier this year and clearance processing going up. You know, Lawmakers start to say, too many people are getting clearances or the clearance process is too easy or the clearance process isn't working because look at this person who you know breached trust. Processing times go up and then the lawmakers come back and say, oh, clearance processing times are way too long. It's a big security concern to have this many people waiting for clearance. And then they come down again. So this happens. We've seen it. You know, Clearance Jobs has been around for 21 years. And over that time period, we've seen clearance processing times rise and fall. We just happen to right now be at another high point. Yeah. And you tied in well to like my next question, which is about Jack Teixeira. So when we talk about top security clearance stories of 2023, that's definitely one that comes up high on the list. You kind of mentioned that earlier. That certainly created some backlash where we had senators, member of Congress saying, hey, we're giving out security clearances like candy. It's way too easy to get a security clearance. I'm not sure that we've seen the end of that narrative, but how does it actually fit with the reality that you see? Is it, quote unquote, easy to obtain a security clearance? You know, uh, no, it's not easy to obtain a security clearance. The reality is that there are 5 million people with DOD clearance. And when you get 5 million people together in any shape or form, there's going to be bad apples in the group, no doubt. The problem is that technology makes it really easy to steal classified information. And the clearance system is all about trust. It's not hard for a bad actor to breach that trust. You know, most of the time, it, it all works out just fine. But make no mistake, there are other Jack Teixeira's out there. He wasn't the first, and he surely won't be the last. But is it difficult to get a clearance? You know, most of the people that go through the process do obtain a clearance, but that's because, one, the process is strict, but it's also because someone who puts themselves through the clearance process tends to know whether or not they're going to be able to get it ahead of time. So, no, I would not say they're being handed out like candy. And considering the the dramatic imbalance between the number of open jobs and the number of people with clearance, I would say that it's still fairly off kilter. And no, it's not easy to get a clearance. They're definitely not handing them out like candy. Yeah, next Halloween, I'm going to start handing out a 136-page SF-86. If you want to forget tricks or treats, I would like you to fill out this 136 pages of personal information. You mentioned that well, is like there is a bit of whenever we talk about the numbers and we'll be posting the denials and revocations and some of those stats over at Clearance Job shortly. But there is a bit of a disconnect, right? Because you have a very, very proportionally small number of people are actually denied a security clearance. There's a lot of people who just personally opt out, right? We've had this conversation over at Clearance Jobs. I don't want to stop using drugs. 
So I'm not even going to bother applying. It's not a matter of could I or could I not? It's I'm not choosing to go through this process. So do you think there's an issue there? Like with, I know that's something you've talked about when it comes to, you know, attracting people into this. Are we doing enough to sell people on the mission of national security to make them go through what can seem like an intrusive process to obtain a security clearance? No, no, the government definitely has not done a, for all the, the good things that government does, one thing they have not done a great job of is selling civil service in homeland security, defense, and intelligence as being a, you know, a viable, worthwhile career for, for people. You know, I, I think one of the things to keep in mind, sorry to, to backtrack just a little bit, is that when Jack Teixeira got his clearance, his background was okay. The issue was not him necessarily getting the clearance. The issue was him maintaining it. The biggest issue with Jack Teixeira is the fact that he was doing bad things behind the scenes where the clearance process doesn't touch. You know, he was actually found to be accessing information that he should not have been. And his superiors at the Massachusetts Air National Guard, you know, said, don't do not do this. And he did it anyway. So he, he should have been pulled out. But I think people tend to focus on how did someone get a clearance in the first place when they do bad and not so much on how did they maintain it. And, and I think that periodic reinvestigations having been phased out in lieu of uh, more automation may not yet be the be-all, end-all solution to this question. It's definitely a step in the right direction, but you know, continuous vetting is still a fairly new thing in, in terms of time. And I, I think the verdict is still out as to whether it is going to do a superior job at, at catching people you know, midstream to make sure that they're still suitable to maintain a clearance. You're speaking a topic near and dear to my heart, Evan. You're saying that technology cannot solve every problem. Maybe, perhaps. I mean, I think that's some of it here, because like you said, there were actual more along the lines of employment related or access control issues, chain of command issues for him since he was you know, a service member. We certainly see this. A lot of the things that we want technology to solve all these problems, but one of the things that unfortunately government doesn't always do well is creating kind of the consequences for negative behavior and denying access based on that. Yeah, like you said, I think it's easy to blame the security clearance process because people just know the term or at least know it, but it's a lot harder to kind of look at the minutia of employment law and what somebody was doing or maybe, you know, what repercussions were possible within his chain of command for why he had access to things he didn't have access to. Exactly. Yeah. And and it only takes one case, one bad apple that goes very public for the whole system to be, you know, put into question. But again, for the majority of people, it works and it works well. But unfortunately, you know, it only takes one person for everyone to call the system into question. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why across the security profession, they, they do say it's risk mitigation. It's not, you know, insider threat training programs, which have, you know, been a relatively new phenomenon of the past 10 years post Aaron Alexis. Those are all designed to mitigate risks, but we're never able to completely eliminate it. So we're going to have this question, you know, every few years probably come up where there is some issue. And then we kind of have that pendulum shifts back and forth between, hey, we need security clearances to be processed faster. We need to, you know, move more people through the system versus, oh, no, we're going to go the other direction. We want, you know, this to take more time. We need to do more vetting. We need to layer more on top of it. Now we have all these continuous vetting solutions that people are definitely emphasizing in a good way. It is catching more things sooner, but it's certainly not the only thing. We still need kind of some actual gumshoe, human-centric security investigations because we don't have technology catching every single thing. The real issue was chain of command and process and making sure people are called out when they do something wrong that could be seen as 
making them less suitable to hold a clearance. That's really where the main failure is. And technology is not going to be able to solve that problem. So let's talk a little about trends for 2024 and what we can expect on clearance jobs. You kind of mentioned this earlier, kind of talking about how we attract more people into this profession. I think that's one of the things where both government and government contractors. When I worked for the federal government, I always assumed like once I land into government contracting, I would see how everybody was doing things way cooler and better than they were in the government. And you realize kind of sometimes government contracting can echo the marketplace that they see within the government as well. And we're not always innovating the the way that we should when it comes to how we hire and retain folks. But that's why I love working for clearance jobs is I really see like you're committed to innovating. Like when it comes to how we hire people, I don't think anybody is doing more innovative things than are happening within clearance jobs. You always are creating more ways for employers and candidates to engage and connect. So we know we have this supply talent issue. Like we need more talent into this marketplace. What are some of the things that you think employers need to be doing in 2024 to help get that next generation interested in national security careers and actually applying and pursuing those jobs? At Clearance Jobs, we can't necessarily create new cleared people, but what we can do is bring them to the service. We can introduce them to employers that are hiring and let the employers talk about why that person may want to leave the current position and come over to their job. The reality is that 92% of people with security clearance are already employed. It's going to take an employer quite a lot of work to convince someone who's already fairly happily employed to leave their current employer and come over to their job. A recent employer slash recruiter survey that we did showed that 51% of recruiters said that their top pain point in recruiting is simply getting candidates to engage. When an employer comes to clearance jobs, you know they may post jobs, they may search through our database, but if the candidates don't engage then they're not gonna get too far. So in terms of technology, one of the things that we've done really over the last year is that we've shifted clearance jobs from being a marketplace where employers and candidates can exchange opportunities to being more of a, a community. And the community aspect is really just so people can get to know each other. And so those opportunities can present themselves in a more soft and organic manner. If most people have jobs, they don't want job postings you know, shoved down their throat 24-7. So the way that we've kind of fashioned the clearance job service now is not only marketplace, but community aspects on top of it, giving employers and candidates the ability to talk, to share information, to share content, whatever type of things that they are reading and, and you know digesting. We've now given both employers and candidates the ability to share that information just so they can talk about it. And it doesn't all have to to be job, 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 job. We've got employers talking about articles they've read and movies they've watched and books they're reading and candidates talking about where they've been traveling to and what they're looking forward to in the new year and what kind of training and certifications they're getting. That stuff opens the door for opportunity. Yeah, no, I love that. And I always love that, you know, you kind of create this safe community for the cleared community where they can have those kind of connections. They can have robust career connections, network with folks who are in this space. The transparency, like even a job listing where you can connect with the employer and and learn more about that company. I just feel like for candidates today, they really want that kind of information. And so employers need to be providing it. I would also say as far as employers and, and recruiters go, especially in this market where it's going to be so difficult to recruit and, and very few candidates are actively job seeking, engaging talent is critical. There is value in interacting with candidates, even without a hire. You know, relationship building with talent in a cleared world pays off in dividends. And just creating goodwill and trust 
is beneficial to employers. I know every employer, you know, and every recruiting team always looks at the bottom line, which is how many hires did we make? There is so much value in interacting with candidates in a positive way, even without a hire. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a key point in talking about how changing some of those recruiting KPIs, because I do think sometimes it is all about a hire, but in this market, I think just getting a candidate to see your message or to engage with content, you know, we have an expressed interest feature on clearance jobs. So just liking a piece of content actually is pretty valuable in this market just to get engagement versus it's going to take a lot of those marketing touch points to make a hire. So kind of helping folks to see that holistic picture of it is super important. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, recruiters are salespeople. The candidates with clearance are the consumers and a salesperson is trying to sell something to someone else. And recruiter is simply trying to sell the open position and the employer to the candidate. No, I love that. And I think, you know, we've seen that with what candidates say at clearance jobs is just logging in and, you know, being active on their profile kind of creates some of that engagement and interest on the employer side and creating more opportunities where folks are able to connect and engage and share information. I think we've talked for years about the hidden job market is definitely where a lot of opportunities are exchanged. And so certainly when you have that community feel for how folks are able to connect and provide information, that goes a long way. And we always say like building out, you know, your career network is always wise, even if you're not looking for an opportunity, just knowing what's out there and being informed about the process and being informed about both, you know, what it takes to obtain a security clearance and what it's like to work in national security. And those community features really kind of help to foster that and kind of create those even internal referral networks within our community and network where folks are watching out for each other, watching out for opportunities, connecting with interesting employers. I love to see all of that, that community building take place. Well, thank you so much, Evan, for being on the show and thank you for your time. I'm really excited for what the next year has in store. I know it's not getting any easier, but it is encouraging always as I see our community grow. I think that's kind of how you persevere through a really tough national security hiring market. We continue to kind of try to do our part to attract more people into this space and to care about this community and to bring together all of those stakeholders. And so that's really important. And it's really important, you know, the way you're you're engaging in this conversation and you're taking the time. So I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lindy. Welcome back. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. And we're talking this segment about the ever present question that I used to get in law practice, Lindy, and that is somebody has it out for me. Will this tank my clearance prospects? And I have to tell you, you know, I spent 10 years representing clearance holders and applicants. And this was a question that I could set my clock to every week. I would get a question from somebody along these lines, and it always involved a scenario, sometimes a my friend, quote unquote, scenario. And it was limitless, the the facts that, that went along with those. And, and everybody wanted to kind of tell their, their story and say, hey, you know, I've got this neighbor who has an ax to grind, or I've got, you know, a coworker who has it out for me, or a boss, or my personal favorite, an ex who's crazy and is going to, you know, tank my clearance prospects. And some of these things were entertaining. Some of them were a little wild uh, in a scary way. They all, though, had kind of the unifying theme that more often than not, these were things that I think were really unnecessary worries. The reason I say that, and this is something we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more, I'm sure, in a minute, but the reality is most clearance denials and revocations are not based on somebody having it out for you. They're based on things that are more black and white and you know easily provable. There's a paper trail as you well know, you know, you didn't pay your taxes for X number of years, or you've, you're up to your eyeballs in delinquent debt, or you have a you know history of 
DUIs or, you know, something like that. And it was really uncommon in my experience to get these cases where, you know, somebody would, you know, have kind of a, of a, he said, she said, or, you know, he said, he said, or whatever the case may be where, you know, that was enough to tank the clearance prospects. Now that's not to say that it never happened more often than not these things were taken with a grain of salt. So I'm curious to get your perspective on this. I know you you get a lot of wild questions on clearance jobs and you know from people who I'm sure have similar concerns. What comes to mind there? Are you trying to say that security clearance applicants are paranoid? I mean, we get those. I mean, the, the funny thing is we talk about this process and Sean and I are always going to give you some of the examples of like the extreme side of the equation, right? Because if folks are anxious or concerned about the process, those are the folks who end up reaching out to legal counsel or to a you know security clearance career site or emailing or, or posting something on a message board. And we do get a lot of those. And I think that's why folks, it's because people don't really understand what the process looks at, right? They're thinking about that one time they did something crazy or that one person who they have to list on the form maybe because they're an employer. The employment one comes up often for us. People are so afraid to say that they have been fired, which I'm like, if we've all been there, you know, not everybody has to like you. Goodness gracious, you do not have to be likable to keep a security clearance. Don't I know it? Like, there's just so many people that it's just not about your likability. It's not a popularity contest. So I think understanding two things are really key for applicants in this. And the first one is it is a whole person concept, which literally means a single individual or incident or issue can't tank you. They want to look at the totality of who you are. So if they have that one reference, in my experience, you can correct me here if if you've seen otherwise, if an investigator hears something negative from a reference, they're going to fact check that. Like, does that back up with something somebody else said? Or like you said, a paper trail of, yeah, you've had a pattern of getting laid off from employers or time card fraud or lying on your taxes. Oh, you have an issue telling the truth. They are looking for those cross references. So that's the first piece of it. And the second piece of it is I think people get really scared about if their background investigator will like them. I mean, some people do. Some people need to care more. And your background investigator could not care less, in my experience. Like, sometimes I wish they cared more, but they just, they have a list of questions. They're there to answer those. They are looking for a baseline of information. And then they don't have to make any value judgments on you because they send it to an adjudicator. So you don't need to try to impress your investigator or the more you try to talk around an issue, because I've seen the applicants do that, right? Like they're afraid somebody's going to say something. So I'm sure for, as an attorney, this makes you super nervous. So they overshare way more information than they need to because they're trying to get ahead of this other person who, again, nobody cares about you as much as you think they do. This other person may or may not even have anything to say, but I find people oversharing information to get ahead of something negative they think somebody is going to say. And that person is not going to get asked about that by an investigator. It's probably not going to share it. And you're worried about something that you don't need to be. You raised a lot of interesting points. First of all, you know, many years ago, as you know, I was a background investigator prior to becoming an attorney and you're talking triggered something in my mind. And that was, I remember distinctly on a number of occasions, somebody saying to me on the conclusion of the interview, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, there's this really crazy person, so-and-so, and like, I don't know what their deal is. If you happen to talk to them, like there's a screw loose upstairs and, you know, just, just pay them no mind, you know, almost like the Wizard of Oz, like ignore the man behind the curtain. It was like, well, okay, I wouldn't have 
thought about this or I wouldn't have given it, you know, but now that you're putting it out there and now that you're drawing attention to it, now I'm curious, what are they going to say? And so let's go find them and go talk to them. Yes. To your point, nine times out of 10 people who have an ax to grind, they obviously have an ax to grind and that's, you know, it's going to be taken with a grain of salt. It's not, you know, it's not going to be enough in a vacuum to tank a clearance if a background investigator goes and interviews somebody and they just spout off about, you know, this person being the devil and, you know, the worst person on the planet and there's nothing to back it up and no other references that are corroborating it, no paper trail. It's going to be written off most often. I will tell you where this most often came up for me was the case of the vindictive ex-spouse. Boy, I mean, I just used to get an earful from people about the crazy things, quote unquote, that the ex-spouse used to do in the context of their marriage. And, you know, oh, did you know that on the weekends they're secretly snorting, you know, cocaine? And did you know that they have this and they do that? And I mean, it was just, you'd sit there most of the time and be like, okay, is there any proof? Is there anything, anyone else that you can direct me to who would corroborate this? No, but you don't believe me? (laughs) Well, it's not that I don't believe you, but I mean, I need some evidence. It's that kind of stuff. And so if that's all that it is, it's not usually going to be enough. Now, the other extreme of that or the other kind of element there, as you say, you know, people trying to impress their background investigators. And I used to get that too, where people would list, you know, uh, some celebrity, you know, B-lister that they tangentially knew as a reference, you know, to try to impress the investigator. And it was like, okay, this person doesn't really even know who you are. This is not helping you, you know, or they would list the boss's boss's boss as their job reference who doesn't even know this person, couldn't pick them out of a lineup. You're not helping yourself here. Those were obviously the the kind of silly ones, but there were occasionally cases that I would see in law practice and as an investigator that did actually create some problems for people or, or at least generate some additional investigation. And those were inevitably where you had a former spouse or romantic interest alleging, you know, some kind of domestic violence, somebody alleging, you know, that there was some really, really serious concern that if true would have been you know, absolutely disqualifying, then it becomes, okay, let's run this down a little bit more. Let's see, is there any sort of other corroborating evidence that might not directly prove it, but might help kind of build a circumstantial case that yes, this person does beat their spouse or this person is, you know, working with some group that may be concerning some you know, white nationalist group or something like that. And so those were the ones that they, they weren't common, but Every once in a while, you'd see something like that and it was like, all right, well, maybe this warrants some additional digging. Did it ultimately, without more, result in a denial or revocation? Generally, no. I think my sort of public service announcement, I guess, to, to the worried applicants out there, which, as you say, there are plenty of them and we, we see lots of them on clearance jobs, if it is a one-off and if there is somebody out there that you're concerned about giving investigators an earful, more often than not, the best thing to do is to just let the investigation take its course. Don't try to preempt things. Don't try to steer the investigation because while these things in a vacuum aren't a concern, what does become a concern is if it creates the impression that you as the applicant are trying to hide something. And then maybe the underlying allegations that are being made against you wouldn't otherwise normally get off the ground, but we have this added circumstantial evidence of the applicant looking like they're trying to actively cover it up. And now it starts to look a little more dicey. I guess, you know, that's probably the best thing that I could say, but any parting thoughts that you would add on that? No, I mean, I think you said it 
perfectly there. I mean, you're dealing with a background investigator who is looking at the circumstances of the case and a single individual or incident should not make you nervous. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.